0: Human rights, the cornerstone of equality and fairness, are universally recognised principles to which every individual is entitled. That's regardless of nationality, gender, ethnicity, religion, language or any other status. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a landmark document adopted by the United Nations in 1948, sets out a fundamental and universal standard for these inalienable rights. Since its inception, the UN has been at the forefront of advocating for, monitoring and enforcing these rights through an array of treaties, international laws and humanitarian initiatives. However, a different story unfolds in some parts of our world. Despite the UN's watch, the spectre of human rights violations haunts the most vulnerable, In conflict-ridden areas like Ukraine, Sudan, and Gaza, tales of appalling suffering are emerging, where the rights to life, safety, and basic needs are not just infringed, but often defiled and shattered. And the advent of new technologies, such as artificial intelligence and the escalating climate change crisis, also present unprecedented challenges to human rights. So is there a need to re-evaluate the human rights framework? To address this pressing concern, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Volker Turk talks to Al Jazeera. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Volker Turk, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. To begin with, a lot of conflict in the world at this time, but let's start right away with what is happening in Gaza and the occupied West Bank and Israel's actions there, which its critics contend, is a massive abrogation of human rights? Well, we
1: are seeing an unmitigated tragedy. Um, We see very grave violations of international humanitarian law. Um, We are also seeing the fact that humanitarian action in the way that it's normally supposed to be done is not possible, in the way that people uh, would respond to the suffering, to the massive suffering of Palestinians, especially in, in, in Gaza, we have now over 1.2 million people just in in Rafa, uh, so you, it's getting winter, it's getting cold. so you can imagine what this means and we don't have enough food to to take to them. we don't have the water that is necessary we don't have the medicine that is necessary and this, well and the west Bank we we have seen a rapid deterioration. we have over seven two hundred seventy one Palestinians killed 69 children among them since the 7th of October and of course let's not forget we need also we have seen the trauma in Israel we have seen what happened there and so I see in front of us a situation of of horror for all communities.
0: Now some within the Israeli government contend that when Hamas launched that attack on October the 7th some of its targets including women and children it did not obey laws of war or laws of humanitarian uh, action. They argue that because of that, it's okay for Israel not to uh, obey such stringent restrictions either. What's your view of that so, argument?
1: So what we saw happen on the 7th and the 8th uh, of October is absolutely horrific and it's unacceptable. But, I mean, it doesn't absolve Israel of its responsibility to respect international humanitarian law and international rights law. You cannot, otherwise it becomes revenge and vengeance. And, and that never leads to a result that is good for, for any community. And I mean, that's also the promise of, of human rights. The promise is to apply human rights equally to everyone. And, and that's what we have to ensure at, at this very, very tragic moment in the history of the Middle East.
0: Now, some may argue that the situation is compounded by the U.S. supply of weapons to Israel in carrying out these operations. Now, the U.S., for the record, says that it only provides weapons to those countries that are in, and I quote them, full compliance with international humanitarian law and the laws of war. But clearly, on the face of it, Israel is not in accordance with these principles.
1: Look, I mean, it's clear that all parties who have any influence over, in this case, Israel, over Hamas, need to exercise their influence to get them back to reason. And to get them back to a situation where international law is respected. And we are not at this space at at this point in time. The US argument is
0: that that's got to be done through interaction, that it doesn't want to use sanction to force the parties together, that it would rather use its relationship with Israel to bring about this end. Is that workable?
1: Well, we see increasingly a narrative that points out the importance of respect for international humanitarian law. And let's also not forget, we have the whole international community. You saw what happened. The General Assembly passed a resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire, which by the way is what all of us have been doing for quite a long time. And that really is the only solution. We need to see an end to this violence. And we need to see a humanitarian ceasefire, a human rights ceasefire, because it's also ultimately about the human rights of, of, all, of, all, of both Palestinians and Israelis, and we need to see an end to this. Nothing good comes out
0: of violence. But here you have the intractable problem. U.S. veto in the Security Council, the U.S. vote against a ceasefire in uh, the General Assembly. This is a major stumbling block, is it not? It absolutely is. And
1: you saw what the Secretary General did um, not long ago. He actually used one paragraph, one article of the UN Charter to put member states and in particular the security council in front of its responsibilities by invoking article 99.
0: Now some have pointed out the language being used by some members of the israeli government you've had reference to gaza's nakba which is in reference to the catastrophe of 1948 when millions of palestinians were displaced or killed you've had reference to palestinians in the most derogatory of terms now some are arguing that this conveys an intent to displace or remove the Palestinian people, which in turn is one of the qualifications for a genocide. Would you go so far as to see that happening?
1: I mean, I'm very worried about dehumanising language. I'm very worried about the type of statements that we have seen both on the part of Hamas but also on the part of some political and military leaders in Israel. And I have made these concerns extremely well known because they are I mean, as we always see in so many situations around the world, they give us great cause to worry and they could indicate a risk of atrocity crimes indeed.
0: Now, let's move to the other point of conflict, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Now, President Biden is on the record as describing that as a genocide. Your view?
1: Look, I mean, Ukraine is, again, we have seen a war that has been going on for almost two years. With a devastating toll on the civilian population, with over, we could verify at least over 10,000 people being killed, civilian infrastructure massively damaged, over well, almost uh, a thousand uh, education facilities d- destroyed, uh, 400 over 400 hospitals being uh, damaged, and of course massive human rights violations. So. And with the onset of, well, we have already, we are not even in the onset of winter, we are in winter, a very, very grave humanitarian situation. So it's clear that the world needs to wake up and bring us back to, we have over 55 conflicts around the world. One quarter of humanity lives in a situation of
0: conflict, of violence. But the world also appears to exist on double standards in many cases. The U.S., uh, would vote against the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It will veto any resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. These situations are pretty similar. Does this type of dual action, or duplicity as I may put it, undermine your attempts as your body to be able to forge some form of lasting respect for humanitarian law?
1: Look, what member states are doing has always been in their own logic uh, and has always been what, what they do. My mandate is an independent one. And my mandate applies itself to each and every country and to each and every situation. And we apply it in, in the way that we, that we see fit. Um, What I think we need to also bear in mind that despite the negative news, I've just come out of a high-level event in Geneva where we commemorated, did not celebrate, we commemorated the 75th anniversary of the the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I was encouraged by the fact that over 155 member states pledged very concrete measures to advance human rights. We got five countries saying that they would abolish the death penalty. We have 54 countries who, who said that they would review their legislation to, from a gender equality uh, perspective to remove discriminatory provisions. We have uh, 14 that said they would establish a national human rights institution. We have uh, 10 that now want to strengthen accountability measures. So we also see this, and I think it's important despite the negativity and the somber moment that we are in, that there there is also progress, and there is. There are countries, there are leaders, there are people, especially young people, who care about human rights and who want the right thing to happen.
0: Every time one situation appears for a moment to be ameliorated, another one breaks out. Mm -hmm. You've got a war underway in Sudan, Sudan, for example, for the last few months. To what extent does this prevalence of action, like the war in Sudan, coming on top of everything else, how difficult does that make your job in terms of getting that needed respect for human rights? Look, Sudan, it was the first
1: country I visited when I became High Commissioner. Mm. And I visited it because I was so impressed by young people, by women who stood up in 2019 to overthrow 30 years of military dictatorship and i wanted to go there myself and see and speak to them and they just had a year earlier another coup so i had a chance to speak to them to speak to young people to speak to the the resistance committees and i was so i was so encouraged by their spirit of of determination of perseverance and then a couple of months later, when we all thought that there would be a civilian transition, these two guys decided to wage war against each other. And it's the worst situation since '56 for the people of Sudan. And we don't see any sign of de-escalation at the moment. And I can only hope that both Al-Burhan and Hametti see that a military solution is not In their own interest, and I hope that accountability will be served because we have seen very grave violations of international humanitarian law and international human rights law, and it drags down the people of a whole country.
0: Now, you're talking about two leaders who fought a war against a dictator together, who promised a return to civilian rule together. Now they are opposed to each other. This is just another example of how easily good intentions can get totally disrupted
1: one of the missing pieces was accountability in sudan and so again if we don't see accountability if we see that impunity is just accepted we have a problem we see this in many conflict situations so another big lesson learned is first of all take human rights more seriously but not just Within the national context, we're well, also within the na- international context, heed the early warning signs, but then also take accountability more seriously. And, and we have seen examples where it has worked. You know, we had the establishment of the International Cr- Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia, International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, now the International Criminal uh, Court, the ICC. But it's not enough. We need much more of it especially in situations where, you, where, you, where people have, have gone into conflict. And transitional justice, truth-telling truth, find, truth telling and accountability are key.
0: Let's take the issue of accountability. Shortly before you took over, uh, your predecessor issued a report mm-hmm. condemning Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs in the Western province. Uh, and that was a damning report, and it stated very clearly that China is responsible for crimes against humanity. Now, what accountability has there been there for China's treatment of the Uyghurs?
1: I have been very clear about the human rights situation in China, and I have, because that's also part of my job, I have engaged with them, and I hope that this engagement will lead to changes and we have an upcoming universal periodic review which is within the human rights system a peer review among member states and I hope that we can really build on that and that we can see changes that are necessary.
0: Once again, that, that report said, as I said, uh, crimes against humanity, but genocide was not mentioned. Is this a conscious decision not to take that It elite? didn't,
1: by the way, it did not. The report did not say that crimes against humanity were committed. They said there is a risk. Maybe, maybe, yes, correct. It could amount to, but it didn't, uh, <laughs> it didn't specifically say that. Um, look, when we do our analysis, we do it on the basis of the facts that we have assembled. We have a very rigorous methodology and we do that wherever we work and so when we say something we we are yeah we use this on the basis of the analysis that my office has 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 been
0: able to uh, conduct just a slight sideways move and one of the issues with human rights is new digital technologies this is mm-hmm. not now using yeah. the example of China once again there are reports that facial recognition uh, software is being used which can identify the race of those being examined now this, as well, is reportedly being used in Israel against uh, Palestinians, mm-hmm. the same technology. Yeah. How much of a human rights contravention is the use of technology like this in, for example, identifying race?
1: Look, when it comes to generative artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. it's a big human rights concern. But first of all, let's also say the positive again. Artificial intelligence, generative AI, will help us a lot to overcome some of the problems. Science, more generally, does, and technology. But we need human rights guardrails. And if there is one lesson to be learned from the social media platforms, is that these guardrails have not been put into place early enough. Because what we see on social media platforms. If it's not regulated, if, 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 if the guardrails are not there, you see the spread of disin- harmful disinformation, you see the spread of hate speech and, and incitement to violence, and we have many examples of that. And so what we need is, especially for the development of, of generative AI, so that it doesn't lead to facial recognition and racial profiling and, and the marginalization of already uh, groups at risk, that these guardrails are built in, and that's a very strong message that comes from the UN. Mm-hmm. You saw the Secretary-General has just uh, established an, adv- a, a, an advisory board on artificial intelligence, and also our, my own office wants to provide that knowledge to the tech companies, and we have started, and we have actually had for quite some time now a dialogue with, with b companies, um, precisely to ensure that they understand that human rights apply when they develop these things and there is again a question of accountability at some stage that needs to be asked
0: uh, issue here is that the un can say this is what needs to be done but it is a nation state like china that puts in those guard roles into the technology that it is using or israel's case with using face uh, recognition technology to what extent do you have the power to not only advise nation states but also ensure that they follow through on what the advice is? Well that's the problem of international law
1: more generally because we don't have the enforcement power. The only thing we can do is use the fact that we have the Human Rights Council, the fact that we have treaty bodies, we have binding legal obligations and that we can only continue to point out these obligations. analyze it, document it, report it, and well, and then see which mechanism picks it up so that it actually gets, gets done. And I have to say, you know, also looking ahead, we have 70 elections coming up next year. Four billion people will, ele- ele- will, will, will go into elections. Four billion people. What I'm worried about is the potential of harmful disinformation on social media platforms. And it's also a responsibility of the business companies because we also know that some of the business models are unfortunately built on negative news, spread of hatred, of harmful disinformation. So there is also a responsibility for member states to regulate from a human rights perspective, but also for businesses to to be aware of their own obligations under human rights for, for, for this type of services that they offer.
0: Now sometimes you see nations undercutting their own principles with something like human rights, for example. Let me take the example of the United States, where presidents of universities have been pilloried for refusing to say that this is hate speech, for example, saying that Hamas's messages about Israel are hate speech. And they are defending that by a First Amendment principle, a freedom of speech principle, which is underpinned by a Supreme Court decision in 1969. And yet the U.S. itself, even the White House, waded in on that argument and pilloried those who refused to discuss something without a context, basing their position on a Supreme Court decision. The country itself, the White House, is ignoring that decision, it would appear. Well, that's a national issue.
1: It's not an issue of freedom of speech and freedom of expression when it comes to international human rights law, because international human rights law has exceptions when it comes to incitement to violence and hate speech and we are very clear that that's not in line with human rights so when it comes to the international legal framework we actually have very clearly defined exceptions that you cannot incite to violence or hatred of of on the basis of race or if it's for against women or or a basis of sexual orientation and gender identity so Human rights law is actually the answer to, and the solution to,
0: this issue. A recurring theme throughout the time that we've been talking, you have used the word a number of times, accountability. Mm -hmm. How does one establish accountability? You've got a Security Council that is crippled by the veto effectively, Mm -hmm. so no sanction can come from the Security Council on most occasions. You've got a General Assembly in which the vote is not binding. How do you, given these circumstances, start establishing accountability, but also demanding accountability?
1: Again, it's good to go back to history, because the Security Council was paralysed for pretty much most of the period of the Cold War. It didn't stop accountability because you could, especially when it comes to human rights violation, universal jurisdiction came up and was de- established. For instance, under the Convention Against Torture, if you are a torturer you are, and if, you, if a Member State has signed the Convention Against Torture, it is under the obligation to, to prosecute you. So there, there are ways and means to work on accountability beyond the Security Council or even the General Assembly. By the way, it is still a very strong, strong signal if there is a General Assembly resolution uh, with a vast majority of member states calling for a humanitarian ceasefire, for example, as we saw just now uh, in Gaza. Um, so one shouldn't underestimate that either, politically. But it is true, at the, legal, at the legal level, we need both the functioning of the International Criminal Court, but also, of course, universal jurisdi- jurisdiction to, to be applied much more rigorously when it comes to violations of human rights
0: would reform of the security council make your job in terms of enforcing human rights easier by perhaps giving a greater representation on the council or indeed removing the veto which has been the stumbling block on so many uh, occasions
1: you know we have had an ongoing debate on the reform of the security council for a very long time and indeed there is hopefully a chance that this will go ahead by it being much more representative. I mean, the details, of course, will have to be worked out by the Member States. It's quite a complex legal issue, by the way. But what I hope that the Security Council will do in the future is actually look at human rights in a much more central way. And that means, because from a prevention perspective, if you see violations of human rights, it's an indication that things are going awry in a country. And that analysis needs to feed into their deliberations. Whether or not it's going to resolve the paralysis that we see at the moment, I don't know. But it is important for the international community to understand that human rights has actually something to say, and more centrally to say, about what's happening in different countries and what the responsibility is, especially of those countries who have influence over warring parties, for example.
0: You're talking about human rights as like a canary in a gold mine. It's when that they are contravened that you know that something is going on.
1: Yes, I think it's a very good image. But it's also a solution. It's not just a canary in the gold mine, it's, it, it's, also, it's also a solution. Um, for instance, economy. Human rights and economic, economic systems were always something that one wouldn't talk about. They wouldn't. Economists told me they never were taught about human rights. Mm-hmm. Actually. If you are an economist, or if you are responsible for macroeconomic policies in your country, and if you don't know about human rights, you will see a rise in inequalities. You will see that marginalized and vulnerable groups are not going to be protected, and you will not invest in education, health and social protection, which is what we see was the big lesson from COVID-19, that you actually, that those countries who had invested in it did much better. So my, again, my message is, Human rights is also a solution, and I wish that each and every discipline around the world would take human rights much more seriously and even know more about human rights so that it can actually prevent the worst from happening.
0: Could you extrapolate that theory about economics to climate change as well? Yes,
1: because climate change, you know, we already see what's happening in the Sahel, for example. We know that, we know in Somalia, I was just in Iraq in August. I mean, I went to parts where I know that You know, in Basra in the south, where the where where the temperatures go up to fifty over fifty degrees centigrade, and not just a couple of days for weeks on end, barren landscapes around me. At thirty years ago, where you had still lush uh, rivers and, and date bombs uh, and, 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 and dates uh, 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 that were there and, and where people could actually live. I talk to those communities who say we can no longer live in these circumstances and they will be displaced eventually or are already displaced and we see the same in the Sahel. Competition over scarce resources means war and that's what we need to prevent. So climate change is the biggest challenge that we face and unfortunately we don't talk enough about it anymore.
0: Volkman Turk, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera.
1: Thank you for the invitation.